The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Allusion, alliteration, allegory, and so on through the alphabet, all the way to zugma and zoomorphism. Similes and metaphors, iambic pentameter, mimesis and litotes, rhyme, negative capability, and the pathetic fallacy. Part of loving literature is loving all of its tricks, all the tools in the toolbox, all the little arrows in the writerly quiver. We're exploring literary terms and devices today on The History of Literature. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you so much for joining us today. I can't wait to get started. This is a fun one. I've got some heavy hitters in the works for future episodes. We're looking at the Gettysburg Address soon. Those 270 or so words that have taken Americans seven score and 19 years to absorb. We're also going to look at Goethe, and here's a surprise, some stories of God written by our old friend, Mr. Rilke. And speaking of old friends, we have our old friend Mike Palindrome on tap for today, here to help us select the top 20 literary terms of all time. It's, of course, an impossible exercise, but then again, so are most of these drafts. So please pick your own favorites and then let our conversation be a stimulus for you and your beautiful mind. Did we land on any of your favorites Did we come up with new ones? Did we make the case? Because really, this one in particular, there are so many terms, it's almost like playing the Powerball or something. If we we rank Jane Austen novels, we will all start with the same seven cards in our hand. We'll just arrange them differently. Though we would all have Lady Susan seventh, I would think, if we even count that one to begin with. But if we're selecting the top 10 or 20 or however many literary terms, there are thousands of cards in that particular deck. So keep that in mind before you write me angry letters on behalf of chiasmus or conundrum. Okay, now, because this is going to be like a dessert today, let's keep in mind the night my sister talked Grandma Rose into letting her eat a bowl of nothing but whipped cream. In spite of my sister's bliss, she got a bit of a stomachache. And because our talk with Mike is the equivalent of a bowl full of whipped cream, we should put a little cake under it before we begin. And so we'll start with another in our series of great literary letters. This one comes from F. Scott Fitzgerald, the author of The Great Gatsby and Tender is the Night and stories like Bernice Bob's Her Hair and The Diamond as Big as the Ritz. In 1938, a family friend sent some stories she had written to Scott Fitzgerald and asked his opinion. Her name was Frances Turnbull, and she was a college sophomore. The man to whom she was writing was in his early 40s, about two years away from the death that would strike him down at the young age of 44. These were his crack-up years as he struggled to put together another novel or write some stories or be paid by Hollywood even as his 
grip on the public continued to elude him, and his personal demons, his private tortures began to eat away at him. He had lived hard as a young man, and now there was a price to be paid. Peter Pan doesn't do well in the old folks' home. But Fitzgerald still had his moments of optimism, and his devotion to writing and literature, always one of his best qualities, was also one of his most steadfast. So, a young woman sends him her stories, and this was his response. November 9, 1938. Dear Francis, I've read the story carefully, and, Francis, I'm afraid the price for doing professional work is a good deal higher than you are prepared to pay at present. You've got to sell your heart, your strongest reactions, not the little minor things that only touch you lightly, the little experiences that you might tell at dinner. This is especially true when you begin to write, when you have not yet developed the tricks of interesting people on paper, when you have none of the technique which it takes time to learn, when, in short, you have only your emotions to sell. This is the experience of all writers. It was necessary for Dickens to put into Oliver Twist the child's passionate resentment at being abused and starved that had haunted his whole childhood. Ernest Hemingway's first stories in our time went right down to the bottom of all that he had ever felt and known. In this side of paradise, I wrote about a love affair that was still bleeding as fresh as the skin wound on a hemophile. The amateur, seeing how the professional, having learned all that he'll ever learn about writing, can take a trivial thing such as the most superficial reactions of three uncharacterized girls and make it witty and charming, the amateur thinks he or she can do the same. But the amateur can only realize his ability to transfer his emotions to another person by some such desperate and radical expedient as tearing your first tragic love story out of your heart and putting it on pages for people to see. That, anyhow, is the price of admission. Whether you are prepared to pay it or whether it coincides or conflicts with your attitude on what is nice is something for you to decide. But literature, even light literature, will accept nothing less from the neophyte. It is one of those professions that wants the works. You wouldn't be interested in a soldier who was only a little brave. In the light of this, it doesn't seem worthwhile to analyze why this story isn't saleable, but I am too fond of you to kid you along about it, as one tends to do at my age. If you ever decide to tell your stories, no one would be more interested than your old friend, F. Scott Fitzgerald. P.S. I might say that the writing is smooth and agreeable, and some of the pages very apt and charming. You have talent, which is the equivalent of a soldier having the right physical qualifications for entering West Point. Mm, that's Scott Fitzgerald writing about writing. We'll be back with Mike Palindrome and our search for the greatest literary terms of all time after this.
The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me once again is our old friend and the president of the Literature Supporters Club, and also the lit tweeter par excellence, Mike Palindrome. He's here today to start our list of the top 20 literary terms of all time. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. All time. I didn't know we were going <laughs> to... <laughs> our favorites, we'll put it that way. Yeah. So in a way, this was easy. And in another way, I found it to be really hard. I think I got to about 200 terms before I gave up and and we wow. only need 20. So I, I have a feeling we're going to steer clear of each other on this one. I'd be surprised if we take one another's picks. I only did 11. Yeah, so right. You figure... Take a couple of... <laughs> couple of mine, I'm screwed. <laughs> so how was the selection process and list making for you? It was tough. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I think I, I went down a rabbit hole with uh, literary theory terms. Uh-huh. But then, you know, like Derrida's like infinite signifier. And yeah. but then I was like, well, when I read today, given, you know, my station in life, like what are the terms that I think I like the most? Hmm. Right. So I started going back to some of the basics and then certain things I was just like, you know, everyone talks about this, but I, I just don't like it. Mm. And I, I don't like it when literature does this. <laughs> so I just didn't put it on my list. Right. That was kind of what I did. I didn't get too caught up in the ranking or, or anything like that. I, I mean, we're going to do that for draft purposes. But I, I have some entries that were in the hundreds that I thought were really excellent terms. So I just sort of grabbed a bunch that I thought would be fun to talk about. Yeah. No, I think I think that's the, you know, some of the stuff close to the vest. OK, so I will let you take the first pick. What is your number one literary term? So it, I think it has to be the consensus. Number one, it's motif, <laughs> light motif. <laughs> that's got to be it. Light motif. Let me see. It was on my <laughs> list. I had it as number 25. Oh, my gosh. All right. So <laughs> I 
immediately thought of Thomas Mann and, you know, and in case I thought maybe we just give like the generic definition, it's a repetition or cycle of a verbal or musical phrase or a description mm. or mm-hmm. a complex of images. And so Thomas Mann, who was uh, a failed composer and thought of the Magic Mountain and his other works as operatic, there's so much leitmotif in the Magic Mountain. There's... Yeah. Uh, Madame Chauchat is always slamming the door to the dining hall. There's whenever the main character is in snow or in the outdoors, he pretends that he's playing king and he's ruling over nature. And I, th- I just, I just find it very satisfying to my point about you know what I look for in literature. I like is when you have these connections and the connections are never heavy-handed maybe the way it's not heavy-handed it's it's a 700 page book Mm. or i I tend to like long books and so like canausgard has a lot of stuff about like beer cans right and spread over 3,000 pages it's very satisfying right well proust also has just these little light motifs that that come in and out and when they re-arrive they're like old friends yeah and i think it's really difficult to do today i think marianne Robinson does it in housekeeping with the with water and nature, the the lake where her grandfather died, and then also the flooding of the house near the end of the novel. But like I think it's it's a dangerous thing to play with when it comes to amateurs or first time novelists. Mm, right, and it it can probably end up being too schematic. Yeah, yeah, right. It, it becomes like you're reading it and you're just like, oh. Yeah, I guess it's like the Chekhovian, you know, the the shotgun over the fireplace. Like, yeah. oh, you know, it's got to be used. If if someone's, you know, flicking a leaf in the air, it's got to come back. And yeah, it's. The, but yeah. I think Mon and Virginia Woolf. Yeah, it's the. I think the the great modernist writers they have this in their in their bailiwick. I think it's good if they're not trying too hard. If it doesn't feel overdetermined. Yeah. If it feels. Like, well, this is something that the author is fascinated by, maybe a little bit obsessed with. And so it keeps coming back because there's more here to unpack rather than this is something that they started out thinking, I'm going to insert some leitmotifs into my novel and it will I will use the following eight and I'll have them spaced out accordingly and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's I think one of the most satisfying things about literature and why I read it and you know, the majority of my reading is literature as opposed to nonfiction or, you know, journalism or anything like that. Mm. Okay. Well, that's a good pick. Leitmotif, number one. Okay. I will take my number one, which is another big heavyweight, heavy hitter <laughs> term. Uh-huh. I've got a bunch here that are just more out of the way, but I thought for number one, I would take metaphor. And I've got a quote here, the famous quote from Aristotle in the Poetics. To be a master of metaphor is the greatest thing by far. It is the one thing that cannot be learned from others. And it is also a sign of genius. And I remember reading that and not really thinking of metaphor in such a grand way. And and Mm -hmm. my recollection of it was really from elementary school where you learn the difference between metaphor and simile and neither one of them seems to be that important it seems like the important thing is to learn that there's a difference that seems how like how it's taught to kids but when you think about it fiction and poetry and any kind of creative description or creative thinking 
it really is drawing on metaphor and it does distinguish literature from other kinds of writing the quality of the metaphor and just the power of the metaphor and i've got some examples here stephen Dedalus and uh, Joyce said, history is a nightmare from which I am trying to awake, <laughs> which is, uh, that's sort of a thought-provoking metaphor. Then there's the descriptive metaphor, like, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks. It is the east and Juliet is the sun. And you can kind of let your mind run with why she's like the sun and what that means for Romeo, that he sees her that way. And then there's the kind of a more modern use of it. I pulled this one from John Updike, where he says he's he's walking in the dark. This this is kind of like a, a flash of you are there, and you maybe have seen this, but haven't thought about it in, in such a way. It's kind of a heightened sense of reality. This is Updike, where he says, it is just two lovers holding hands and in a hurry to reach their car, their locked hands, a starfish leaping through the dark. Hmm. And that's the kind of thing where it's it's a little bit writerly, but it is when when someone is as good at it as Updike or lots of other writers who are, are basically poets who are writing prose, it can be a really uh, vivid and, and memorable part of the narrative. Yeah, and I also, I, th- I think it, it operates on a sentence level, which is really, you know, mm-hmm. the way I love reading new writers. Sometimes I, I don't quite trust the new writer. I'm just looking for the first sign to dismiss them. Yeah. But then they'll have a, a, a wonderful metaphor. Yeah. And just, I, I'll just think like, oh, I, I have to pay attention to this writer. I think Nicole Krauss, you know, first time I was reading her, she was so hyped, uh, History of Love, that, you know, part of my brain was like ready to dismiss her. But on a sentence level, sentence by sentence. And I think metaphor is, you know, a big part of that sentence by sentence, like trust mm-hmm. that, you know, you, 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 as a reader, you feel you trust this writer. Right. It's like a, a poem in miniature. You know, if you're reading yeah. a novel, you're, you're expecting to get voice, you're expecting to get some plot, some character, but when they can pull off a metaphor, it also shows they can kind of give you that same sensation that a poet might of making you see something new for the first time, or William Empson, the, the great mm-hmm. theorist, called it that there was a pregnancy to metaphors, that there's mm-hmm. something, you know, there's a creative spark that can open a window into a new world in just a brief yoking together of, of two images. That's a good pick. Okay, so we are up to number two. I, I went with met, metanomy, uh, um, okay. which, you know, it, it's a figure of speech that replaces the name of one thing with the name of something else closely associated with it. And mm-hmm. I, I think the way I love it is the way that it's part of a smaller community and it, it, it's often used in, you know, when there's like a shift to a vernacular within a novel that I find, you know, you, you're sort of let in behind the curtain and you, you hear how a, a community talks in shorthand. And, mm. and so, I mean, it's, it, it can be very satisfying to be let in on a secret. And also, I think it, it gives the opportunity for the writer to be incredibly creative. Like in Infinite Jest, the word map is used to refer to one's face or one's self or selfhood. And committing suicide is, they call it eliminating your map. Mm. And it's used throughout. And I think it's its this way of, you know, th- this device is a way of talking about something in a fresh light rather than just, you know, okay, this is sad, this is dark, you know. So eliminating your map, 
sounds very detached, but also it's used in a hilarious ways. Yeah, right. And and it does give you a lot of times it gives you that slang and sort of insider talk. You have to know what the subculture is in order to know what they're talking about. So if someone says, yesterday I, I was walking home and I ran into some jocks, yeah, you know, and you, you recognize that they're talking about a group of people, a class of people, and this is metonymy. I always thought it was pronounced metonymy, but I'm not sure. I'll, I'll defer to you on that. But it's, you know, or, or someone who says, oh, you know, Mike's got a new ride. That's a cool new ride right. instead of car. I think it's one of those things where when you read something in translation, I don't often think that I'm missing out. Hmm. But when you read like, you know, Philip Larkin, yeah, right. you, just, you just feel like, wow. I mean, I, it must be really hard to read him in translation. Right. Yeah. That's the kind of thing I think translators will try to track down. Or when you see translator, you hear about translators who are contacting the author, chances are that's the kind of thing they're trying to get right. I think it's, it is pronounced the way you've been pronouncing it, metonymy. Yeah. Well, I, I am probably going to get about <laughs> half of the pronunciations right on some of these. Uh... I was going to ask you about some of these. So. <laughs> Okay, well, I'll take my number two, and I'll probably be deferring to you and your pronunciation, because this is uh -huh. from the world of literary criticism, and I'm going to take heteroglossia, which is one of uh, <laughs> Bakhtin's phrases. Mikhail Bakhtin, I, I am not sure I fully understand this one, just like I'm not sure I fully understand just about anything from Bakhtin, but what I take it to mean is that the world is complex and complicated and language reflects that and narratives do too. And so every voice, every utterance, every word, it doesn't mean something specific and finite and explicable. It's always in context. And so any attempts by linguistics or symbolists or any other sort of ism that tries to say that this word means this one thing and or this image will mean this one thing in this poem or this narrative it will fail because it, it won't recognize the reality that life is much more chaotic than that and every time there's a a word used you, you kind of have this whole raft of meanings and contextual clues and and just the importance of who's speaking and and why and what kind of thing they're trying to get across and what goes into that choice of that word is much more complicated than any kind of literary system that reduces the complexity would suggest. Yeah, no, I think it's a great term. I, I always think of it as like that the page is alive. Yeah. That you can't, right. you can't like pin down, you know, th this is when this was decided. It's really more just like there's this tension between so many different facets and one sort of seems, you know, more prominent to you at that moment. Yeah. And there, I, there are certain writers that Bakhtin really favors over others. I think Zola is sort of kind of like in the jail cell for a lot of theorists in terms of just the, the closed interpretation that happens mm. in his writing. Right. And yeah, and the thing is about it, it's not something that we should resent or it's not something we should just throw up our hands, but instead we should embrace that there is a complexity here instead of trying to ignore it or or explain it away we should accept that this is complex and complicated because language is and because life is yeah 
Yeah, I think he, I think he has a number of terms that probably could have made this list. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the only one I I have in my top ten. <laughs> but I did have a bunch of them that were on the longer list. Okay, so what is your number three? All right, with number three, I went with Ian Forrester's flat versus round characters. Oh, yeah, I thought well, about that. I, yeah, I I was just you know thinking about how much I love flat characters. <laughs> <laughs> two two dimensional, uncomplicated. They never change. Yeah, I really, I really enjoy having. Uh, and he, his point is, you need both. Right. And everyone's drawn toward the round character that's complex and changes right. over time. But like in Norwegian Wood, the narrator, who you know is working out his desires about who he likes and loving to do whatever you know comes to mind. He stays up all night reading a Herman Hess book and drinking whiskey. And he's unpredictable. Well, he has this roommate in college who he calls the stormtrooper, who exercises every day, adheres to a schedule, and is ready to graduate and become a company man. Mm. And he is so two-dimensional, but he's it's really funny the way the two of them interact. And it it does remind me that whether or not you get it's because you don't get to know a person well, there are these two-dimensional people in life. Right. Yeah. 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 Do you think that people in life are all round? No. Well, let me let me ask it this way. (laughs) Yeah. Is everyone the round character in their own story or because definitely as someone goes through life, you are a round character, but there are people in your life who are flat characters. Do you think that that's the way it is for everybody? Or do you think there are some people who are not round characters, even in their own narrative? It's cruel to say that. But <laughs> I, I do think that there, there are people who are flat characters in their, in their own life. Maybe they have round moments. Like yeah. I, I think of, you know, well, I don't want to name names. But, I, you know, it's, you have a round character moment in your life, but otherwise you're you're generally flat. Right. So a round character, just so everybody knows, I mean, I think everybody knows, and if they haven't, if they haven't heard it from Forster, they've probably gleaned it from what we've been talking about. But a round character would be someone who changes, someone who's got some subtext, some, some things under the surface. And a flat character would be someone who maybe is a little bit plain, a little bit dull, or maybe... Maybe isn't maybe is kind of interesting, but is but doesn't really change. Is sort of static, and they will maybe they really love watching football, but that's kind of the only thing about them that is of any interest at all. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I feel like every group of friends, there's a person. They may not be a, a flat character, but they play the part. They like enjoy right. being like. The super crazy person, the funny person, the the the, the intellectual. I, I think they, you know, it, it doesn't mean you're not intellectual to be flat. You can be a flat intellectual character. I think that's a classic mm-hmm. right. English novel right. trope. Yeah, the guy who was writing the book about animal classification or something. Yeah, and, and <laughs> the genealogy of horses, right? Yeah. Uh, I think people do play these roles in families too. Mm, yeah. I have a feeling that although I like to, <laughs> yeah, I like to think of myself as a round character. I have a feeling that right. my kids probably think I'm flat, and my nieces and nephews probably think I'm even flatter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm the guy who, you know, smiles and and oversees the family and carves the turkey and and drives everyone to and from the place, but you know, not the life of their party. Right. 
<laughs> okay, that's a good one. Okay, so that was your third number. That was your third one. Yeah. I gotta make a note of these because I'm gonna keep track. So your first one was what? Light motif. Light motif. And then and then you took metonymy. Metonymy. And this one that you just took was flat versus round. Flat versus round characters. Okay. We're going to do an episode on EM Forrester coming up here soon, too, I think, which will be interesting. Okay, I will take my number three, and then we'll take a quick break. So my number three, I took Zugma, which is a little term I just love. It comes from the ancient Greek. We've already had a couple of ancient Greek terms, and, and they're experts in rhetoric. I love how they named all these things, which we use intuitively. We hear them all the time, and yet we don't always recognize that they even have a name. It's sort of like metaphor in that it's another yoking together but it's specifically about language. So an example might be, I lowered my glass and my standards. Mm. Or uh, she went home in tears and Alexis. <laughs> and it's kind of got that little, that little element of surprise. It's a little playful. Mark Twain had one where he, in Tom Sawyer where he said, they covered themselves with dust and glory. I've got two more examples. One is Amy Tan, who said, we were partners, not soulmates. Two separate people who happen to be sharing a menu and a life, which was kind of a nice, it's kind of a nice one. And then my last one is get out of my dreams and into my car, which is uh, I know that song. the great uh, Billy Ocean. Yeah. So with <laughs> Billy Ocean as our zenith, let's take a quick break and come back with more on our list of great literary terms. Okay, we are back. So let's recap so far. You have taken leitmotif, metonymy, and flat versus round characters. I have taken metaphor, heteroglossia, and zugma. We still have hundreds of terms left to choose from. What is your number four? All right, I just came in from, took this from left field, Breck's alienation effect. Mm. It's to okay. make familiar aspects strange on stage predominantly. Um, but also Ooh. literature and film to prevent an emotional identification or involvement of the audience with what's going on on stage. Now, is this related to the uncanny? I guess. I mean, it's but but it's more well. It may have shared aspects, but it's more drastic. Like if a character breaking down the fourth wall. Mm, okay, got it. And so you might suddenly break out into song or expose the lights and the ropes in the stage or you know, ask the spectators I question. See. And this is one of those things where I just love the concept. I can't really think of an example in literature. I mean, mm. I primarily think of this in film, like Jean-Luc Godard showing like title frames or yeah. when characters look right into the camera and talk about, you know, their feelings. Yeah. I always love it in uh, a cartoon where Homer Simpson is suddenly 
you see a big pencil coming in to, to erase part of his head or something. <laughs> right. And he, oh, he's like, he's running away, you know, while yeah. he's, they're erasing him. <laughs> or someone's drawing the landscape as he's like running into it. I heard Martin Amos say once that his father stopped, Kingsley stopped reading his novels when he was reading, I think it was Money, and there was a character in it named Martin Amos. <laughs> and his father just threw the book across the room and said, I'm, I'm not going to read any more of your works. <laughs> <laughs> alienated <laughs> yeah I mean I guess one example is uh, heartbreaking work a staggering genius it has 40 pages of preface which mm. um, kind of tries to preempt any criticisms you may have of the book right which I and I, I thought was very effective mm. yeah yeah I mean that's the that's the thing it's it's alienating but it can also be inviting in a way to to say you get that this is artifice and I get that this is artifice and let's not dance around that fact and let's not pretend we're, we're not as smart and as knowing as we actually are. Yeah. I think it's, it, it, it you know, it, it's tied to originality, which I, I, as I get older, I, I, I feel like originality can trump a lot of flaws in, in a work of literature. Okay. So that's alienation effect. Leitmotif is a German word too, I think, right? Yeah, from it means yeah, it means guiding motif. Yeah, so you're uh, going all German. We're, we're we're Germans and Greeks, and one <laughs> Russian and one English so far. Okay, <laughs> so I will take my number four, which is MacGuffin. Oh, that was that was that was, <laughs> was that on six? your list? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this, as you know, is from thrillers and suspense novels and films. And Alfred Hitchcock didn't invent the term, but he really popularized it. He described it in several different interviews. But basically, it's the reason for the chase or the search or the quest. And he said he called it, it's the thing that the spies are after, but the audience doesn't care. And it, it it originates from a story about two men on a train, a Scottish, uh, I guess they're probably traveling to Scotland. And one man says, what's that package up there in the baggage rack? And the other says, oh, that's a MacGuffin. And uh -huh. the first one says, what's a MacGuffin? And the other man says, well, it's an apparatus for trapping lions in the Scottish Highlands. <laughs> and the first man says, but there are no lions in the Scottish Highlands. And the other one says, well, then that's no MacGuffin. <laughs> And Hitchcock would tell that story and then he would say, so you see that a MacGuffin is actually nothing at all. <laughs> so there's some great examples. The Maltese Falcon is a good MacGuffin. Yeah. A lot of times it's a roll of microfilm or secrets or a paper, you know, letters or something like that. And it actually seems like today movies can sometimes struggle because they need something physical to be the MacGuffin, but information really doesn't have to be physical now. And so you, you see, like there was that Star Wars movie where they were trying to get these computer discs and it was like set in the future. And you just think, why in the world would those be on hard drive discs? You know, they, they could, and, and why would they be the only copies? Why wouldn't they be in the cloud? Why wouldn't there be, you know, multiple copies of things? And so it, it, it doesn't make it very exciting to watch people, you know, t tapping on computers to try to track something down or unlock something. Instead, you want to have them, you know, racing through some kind of landscape. And so it, it, the digital world is maybe not all that kind to story writers as they seek out their MacGuffin. I love the use of the suitcase in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, right. They open it up and it glows. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
And it just makes its way around from scene to scene. Yeah. And you never find out what's in it, you know? There's a debate about whether the MacGuffin can really be nothing at all. George Lucas said the audience does need to care, and he gave Raiders of the Lost Ark as an example of of that actually had real stakes, and you felt like it was something the Nazis could use to to win the war and so on. Although there is kind of a theory that actually the world would have been better off had Indiana Jones just allowed them to find it since everyone who opened it <laughs> melted. They could have given it to Hitler and assassinated him that way. And actually, <laughs> actually, uh, they prolonged the war by uh, by saving them from the Lost Ark. Anyway, he also said R2-D2 was the MacGuffin of Star Wars, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I never thought of that. Yeah, I didn't either. But I guess that's right. He's got the message on him that they're, you know, the... The Princess Leia message. Oh, right. So also, as I was doing some research for this, I ran across a very interesting section, I guess, uh, on Wikipedia, where they have a see also section. And they had some great terms in there that I wanted to mention. I don't think you'll be taking any of these, but it has like red herring, for example, which is basically a, a fake MacGuffin. I didn't know the origin of the the term red herring, but it's it's they used to use a strong smelling herring smoked fish to distract hounds away from chasing rabbits oh wow but then the other see also is there's one called alien space bats which apparently is a term used for alternative history accounts when someone is is saying well what if this had happened and what if that had happened and what if this had happened and and somebody was describing whether the nazis could have invaded england via the English channel, and someone else responded, well, sure, they could have, uh, but only with the help of alien space bats. <laughs> and so now <laughs> that's a term people will use when, when uh, writers of alternative history will start to get a little bit carried away. There's another one I like, Big Dumb Object, which is uh, in all caps or initial caps. That's one in science fiction where they'll have a mysterious object of immense power, like some giant electromagnetic field or some big cloud shows up or is present somewhere in the universe and nobody knows exactly what it is, but it it's inspiring awe and people are trying to figure out exactly what to do about it. And then the last one on the C also list is unobtainium where they'll have, you know, everyone is running around trying to get something, and it's just something that's really hard to get, but uh, is ultimately not real or, or meaningless, but but it's very helpful for creators of intricate plots that, you know, some supervillain will say, I can build my doomsday machine, but I just need to get enough unobtainium to run it. <laughs> so unobtainium is the, the word that the screenwriters use behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, it, it just, it, I think the more... I've come to think the more MacGuffins you have, the the richer the story. There's a there's a book called The Double MacGuffin, which I think is probably <laughs> trying to get at that. Yeah. So what is your number five? So number five, I went with Illusion. And this was the toughest one oh. to... Because I, I, I don't know if I'm that crazy about Illusions. <laughs> but I, I recognize that, you know, it adds texture, it's important... But I, yeah. I feel like it, it's this detective work of scholarly annotators. And mm. so I'm, I'm rereading Ulysses by Joyce right now. And I have to say that yeah. I'm not quite, I mean, the illusions are interesting, but I don't, I, I just enjoy the language more. And yeah, there's too much of the secret handshake stuff with illusions. Like, especially when sometimes I feel like illusions 
come out of like a classical education where yeah. there maybe was a group of people who were all studying the same thing and they could use these illusions that no longer are as easily identifiable to us or biblical illusions where if you're not steeped in the Bible, maybe some of them will go over your head. And sometimes it feels like it's a little too insidery or it, it dates it, that the illusions are no longer things that we would find yeah. that interesting or meaningful. I think if, if it's more a, also a theme, a thematic illusion, like, you know, I feel like there are instances of where people have kind of evoke the brothers Karamazov, the brothers' relationships. Mm. You know, somebody said that about Infinite Jest, which, I mean, admittedly, I, I never noticed that. But, I mean, there's a lot of Hamlet stuff in Infinite Jest. And, you know, when it's thematic, I can appreciate that, you know. But it, there's something about, like, the wasteland, which kind of leaves, yeah, me, just gonna say leaves me cold. Yeah. It leaves me cold, some of, this, some of these illusions. But I, I do recognize well, it's like, you know, uh, you know, it's a game that everyone acknowledges is interesting. Hmm. Well, do they? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> there's probably, uh, you know, fans of The Wasteland would say that, but there's probably a lot of people who started reading it and just thought, eh, I find this, uh, yeah. you know, I don't know if I'm supposed to get something out of it, but I don't seem to be getting it. And I'm just uh, going to put the book down. And it's not going to be for me. Yeah. And, and it, it, I mean, the, the on the, the pedestal is The Cantos by Pound. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that, like reading some of that, you just think like he was probably well, writing for three other people. Yeah. Because sometimes it would be so detailed into like some French troubadours uh, song or something. And you'd think there are probably only a handful of people who would get it. But also he would have allusions to like conversations he had had in real life or something. And so, you know, allusions nobody could really get. Yeah. Okay. Well, interesting. I like that you got to number five and you were already taking things you were kind of uneasy about. <laughs> <laughs> so I will wrap things up with my number five, which is free indirect discourse, which is also called free indirect style or free indirect speech. But it's a novelistic technique that a lot of people attribute to Jane Austen. Flaubert basically perfected it. But Jane Austen is where you first really see it used on a widespread basis. And modern novels in the third person really depend on this development, where writers use it now, even if they don't know what it's called or don't know that it's a, a specific term. But basically, before free indirect style to get inside someone's head, you either had to use first person or you had to have them writing a letter or you would have them say something out loud or you would say, he thought, comma, quotation marks, and then say what the thought was in quotation marks. And nowadays, you don't have to do that. You know, so the examples I have here, so basically, this this developed in three stages. So direct would be James stroked his beard and said, maybe I should invite Mary to the dance. He's saying that out loud. Indirect would be James stroked his beard and considered whether he should invite Mary to the dance. And then free indirect is James stroked his beard. Maybe he should invite Mary to the dance. And so it's a way of letting the narrator dip into and out of consciousness very easily. And you kind of drop the omniscience of the narrator or disguise it so it seems less like the narrator is standing there taking a bird's eye view of everyone and everything. And instead, you get the sense that you're being allowed a sort of privileged window into someone's thinking just for that moment 
And then it, you feel like you're more in the room with people. You feel like you're more inside their minds rather than you're just listening to somebody describe all these different people. Yeah, I mean, I was going to, you know, not being out of that room, let out of that room, I was going to pick stream of consciousness next. Mm, yeah. And I mean, I, I, I think, you know, obviously with to the lighthouse, I always think of that example as very controlled, but then even a little less control like USA Trilogy by John Dos Passos, I enjoy. And obviously the the, the end of the Ulysses. And I, you know, I think there, there it is this, it's almost like something that every writer at some point must try, must have tried and just mm -hmm. kind of gives up because they just feel like it doesn't have the right effect. But when it's done, the effect is so powerful when it's done well. Yeah, I think free and direct discourse is kind of like a, a river that's flowing and stream of consciousness is when the dam bursts and you just give <laughs> into this and you just say, we're going to spend the, you know, we're going to, we're not even going to have the the narrative hooks in order to get into their mind. We're just going to give it all over to their mind. Yeah. It's like the the unfinished last volume of Man Without Qualities. You know, even <laughs> even though there are descriptions and settings, to, to, <laughs> it feels like stream of consciousness. Maybe that's a new term we can come up with, the effect of stream of consciousness Yeah, without the stream of consciousness. Right. Okay. So let's uh, summarize, and then we are going to wrap things up. And we're going to come back and we're going to do 11 through 20 uh, in a follow-up episode. But here we have one was leitmotif, two was metaphor, three was metonymy, four was heteroglossia, five was flat versus round characters, six was zugma, seven was alienation effect, eight was MacGuffin, nine was illusion, and ten was free indirect discourse. A pretty good list of literary devices. We are roaming around the world, roaming through the centuries. That does it for our top ten. Mike, thanks as always for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you had some fun with that one. I know I did. We'll be back soon with some more literary terms. Mike and I couldn't just stop with 10. We had to push it to 20, but that will be for another day. And so will our conversation. My thanks to Mike for joining me. Dear listeners, this journey we are taking together, a lot of veering off to the side. We look at the Eiffel Towers of the world, but we also venture into some dark little Parisian alleys. Sometimes because there's room in our day for mice as well as majesty. It's a journey like no other. I'm glad you chose to join us for it. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>